0: Good morning, church. Great to be with you all. Uh, You know what? Just how sweet is it to have our students with us, to have them leading worship. They're working back there hard, too. Keep calling. Dora, thank you, guys. So we're super blessed, super blessed to have you all participate. Special thanks to Pastor Hudson, our youth pastor, and all of the volunteers. In fact, uh, Hudson is going to be bringing the sermon next Sunday. He'll be in Acts chapter 12. Today, we're in Acts chapters 11 and 13. So... Just by way of reminder, the overarching title or theme of our series, as we work our way through the book of Acts, is this, how to change the world. And so we've been reminded that if we want to bring real permanent change into the world, then we must bring the message of Jesus. Obviously, not only does that have benefits in this life here and now, but it has eternal consequences as well. So here's how things have started so far. Just a quick recap. 2,000 years ago, Christianity started with a group of Jews living in Jerusalem who believed that Jesus is the Messiah. See, they, they understood their Old Testament. They read those passages that spoke of a forthcoming Messiah. They realized that Jesus was the fulfillment of all those prophecies and more so, sort of like the gas that lit this whole thing on fire was the fact that Jesus made many post-resurrection appearances. Now that's significant. We've said many times that there would be no Christianity if there was no resurrection. It's one thing to say, hey, Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. It's another thing to say, we saw him after he was crucified and buried. We ate with him, we lived with him, he taught us, we received instruction. And so because of this experience, these early Christians, they had to tell others. But it was really exclusively a Jewish thing. It was one Jew telling another Jew about who Jesus is. And then something tragic happens, but God often takes tragedy and turns it into triumph. This man named Stephen He's an early believer. He gets killed for his faith in Christ. They stone him to death. As a result of this, it's no longer acceptable to be a Christian in Jerusalem. So the Christians begin to spread out. They begin to scatter. They head south down into Judea, and they head north up into Samaria. And what ends up happening is that the words of Jesus, spoken in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 they become fulfilled. When he said to his early followers, you're going to be my witnesses, it's going to start in Jerusalem, and then it's going to go to Judea, and then Samaria, and then it's going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's exactly what happens. But the death of Stephen was the catalyst to move them outside of Jerusalem. And so because they're, they're so crazy about this resurrection phenomenon fulfilled in Jesus, they're telling everybody, no matter where they go, they're spreading the message. So when they travel north to Samaria, we learn that they encounter Samaritans half-blooded Jews, Bible tells us they had no dealings with each other. The Jews saw the Samaritans as unclean, impure. They kind of gave it back to the Jews. They did not get along, but these Jews, as they were traveling through Samaria, they were telling them about Jesus. And lo and behold, the Samaritans respond in faith. Now you have Samaritan believers. And then in this other place, we read about this Ethiopian and this Roman soldier They don't, they're not within the Jewish community at all, but they're considered God-fearers. These are Gentiles who respect, admire, even worship the God of the Hebrews, but they don't understand the Hebrew Old Testament like the Samaritans or the Jews, but they're drawn to to their God. They're called God-fearers they are given the message of Jesus. They respond in faith. So now everybody's like, wow, okay, God is doing something that we never expected. What we thought was just for the Jews is now being expanded into a much, much bigger family. Then we come to chapter 11. And what we see in chapter 11 is kind of like take, taking the lid off of this whole thing. Because God does something that is so beyond what anybody could ever expect or anticipate. In fact, some of the early believers are having a hard time accepting the fact that God would actually be doing something like this. Certainly, the gospel was for the Jews. Okay, maybe Samaritans because they had a little bit of Jewish blood in them. For those who feared God, they were Gentiles. They wanted to know more about the Jewish God. Okay, maybe God would meet them. But now, the gospel is going forth to a group... They have no idea who the Hebrew God is. They have absolutely no understanding of the Hebrew scriptures. These would be, in a modern day context, like the most unchurched people you could think of. They've never stepped foot in a church. And God has something for them. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So this tells us they're really beginning to spread because Antioch is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. They were speaking the word, they were telling people about Jesus, but look at this, to no one except Jews. So many of them were still thinking, this is still primarily a Jewish thing. Jesus is just for the Jews, he's the Jewish Messiah, the hard root of Christianity is is Jewish, it's just for the Jews. So many of them were were talking about Jesus, but just to the Jews that they encountered. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists also. Preaching the Lord Jesus. So it's this group, the Hellenists, that don't fit into any of these boxes. Sure, maybe a Samaritan, half blooded Jew, maybe to those Gentiles that wanted to know God, they worshiped God, but they didn't know about Jesus, and so God miraculously pro- provided a missionary to explain Jesus to them. Sure, okay, all of that makes sense. Great, God would reach those people. But the Hellenists? So the Hellenists were Greeks who had no comprehension, none whatsoever of any Jewish context. They were polytheistic. The idea that there would be one God. The Greeks worshipped many gods, but one God? No, these guys were they are completely in a different place. And yet, when the message of Jesus gets to them, lo and behold, they start responding. We know this from chapter 13 and verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers now we're going to get a list of names now this list of names is extraordinarily important when you understand who these people are and what God is doing now in this thing called the church because maybe you've heard me say over the last few weeks there has never been nor will actually there ever be anything like the church For this very reason alone, God is doing something that is so countercultural, and I know this is a big statement, but I'm going to back it up. The world had never seen anything like it. Okay, here's a description of these leaders in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas. Barnabas was a Jew from Cyprus. Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger is the Latin word for black. Presumably, he's from Africa. Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa, but that part of North Africa that was dominated by Arabs. Then there's this guy named Manaius. He's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. This is the same Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. He has a ton of influence and power. He kind of fancied himself as sort of Christianity's number one opponent, and he was gonna kill one of their greatest advocates, right, in John the Baptist. But yet, he's got this guy that he grew up with, and he has come to faith in Jesus Christ. So this church, will become one of the most influential churches in all of history. And the reason why is because of the diversity of its people. You have this multi-ethnic group. You have people that have places of very high prominence and position, right, very close to the king. You have those who are at sort of the bottom of the social ladder. You would have slaves who have now been a part of this Christian movement. All these people from these different backgrounds, ethnicities, race, they're all coming together now under this thing called the church. Up until this point, every race had its own religion. Do you realize that? Isn't that interesting? See, if you were a Greek, you worshipped the Greek gods. If you were a Samaritan, you worshipped the Hebrew god, but in your own way, different than the Jews, If you're a Jew, you worship the Hebrew God, but according to the Old Testament Scriptures. Every race had its own religion until Jesus comes into the picture. And Jesus lowers all of these barriers that humanity has wanted to put up to keep them apart. And so, even from the outside, outsiders are going, how, how do we explain what's happening here? How, how do we explain this? We, we don't even have a word to describe what's happening. This is how revolutionary it is. That's why in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it says it was in Antioch. But By the way, Antioch was one of the most diverse cities in the known world at this time. It was a hub for training, trading. It attracted people from all over. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Isn't that interesting? It's like they were saying, we've never seen anything like this anywhere in the world. How are we going to explain the unity in the midst of all this diversity? Well, we got to really figure this out. I guess the best way to describe it is to figure out what it is that unites them. Well, what is it that unites them? Christ. Christ is the Latin word for Christos, which means Messiah. See, all these people with all these different backgrounds, they're all united around the belief that Jesus is who he said he was, that he died on the cross to forgive them of their sins, that he rose again the third day, and by believing in him, they'll have eternal life with him. The word Christian literally means little Christ. They were seen as little Jesus followers. That's the only way to describe it. So, wouldn't it make sense that this becomes the first church to see the importance of reaching out to the world? It's the first church that engages in global missions, if you will. And it does make sense because everybody's, you know, gathered around. This, these, are, these are guys in leadership that we're reading about. All this diversity coming together, like, all right, well, clearly, God is including all people into his family So we need to take this beyond Antioch and to the rest of the world. And in order to do that, we need to send forth, watch this, our best. Our best. We're going to send forth the A-team to go out and to carry this message beyond our walls. Chapter 13, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This would have been an incredible moment in church history because, again, for the congregation, it's like, okay, what are we going to do? We're, just, we're sending off two of our all-stars. These guys will go on to become the most successful church planters of all time. And from one church planter to another, you just have to bow down and give them all respect. The apostle Paul will go on to be one of the most influential men who has ever lived. I'll prove it to you. 2,000 years later, millions of people all over the world are reading the things that he has written. Okay? The guy was very, very successful. So the church says, we're going to take our best, and we're going to send them out to reach the world. They do so. And you know what happens to the church in Antioch? Without their two key guys, that church thrives. How is that possible? Well, what we learn is that this church was committed to some fundamental things that make it healthy. In chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, we read this. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. By the way, this is the same Saul that had the Damascus Road encounter, and he was a, a Jewish academic, a Jewish zealot, sought to kill Christians, saw the resurrected Jesus, gets his life turned upside down. When he found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church, and they taught a great many people. All right, so if a church is going to have a profound spiritual impact in the world, then that will be a church that is committed to teaching the scriptures. So my commitment to you has been and will always be to rightly divide the scriptures, to bring you every Sunday, every time we get together and I have the opportunity to exercise my gift in serving you, My commitment is, it's to just deliver this feast. My job is to set the table for you so that you can just dine off of the banquet that is the richness and the nourishment that is God's word. A church that wants to have a profound impact in the culture will be a church that is committed to understanding, receiving, teaching the word of God. Paul and Barnabas They taught for a solid year, and the congregation grew. Anytime there's biblical teaching, there will be fruit. Um, And you see some of this fruit in chapter 11, verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Then you get this little parenthetical statement that this actually took place in the days of Claudius. So... Early historians actually record, they write about this event. It actually did happen in the first century AD. There was a famine that took place in Judea. And it was under the reign of Claudius. And so this prophet comes down, actually says, hey, it's going to get really hard for the believers in Judea, the church in Judea. And so the church in Antioch hears this prophetic word, and they say, great, we need to help them. We need to prepare them for what's about to come because when there's a famine, food is scarce, the price of food goes high. We need to take care of our brothers in the city of Judea, in the area of Judea. So the disciples determined Everyone according to his ability. That's a great principle for your own personal generosity, by the way. People ask themselves, well, how how generous am I supposed to be? Well, here's the first first question to ask yourself. Well, what has God entrusted to you? You know, it's kind of like the parable of the talents. One has 10, one has 5, one has 1, right? Now... All you're responsible for is to be faithful with what you have been given. So you ask yourself, what is it that God has given me? And in what proportion now, what is my responsibility to give based on what God has entrusted to me? So that's a great, that's a great starting point. So they send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So once again, healthy churches are characterized by this giving attitude and showing love to one another. Love to one another. Uh, Okay. Uh, This is why it's so important for Christians to gather together in face-to-face personal interaction. A screen will never, never be able to replace it fully. Even those cute little heart-shaped eye emojis, they will never, ever replace your God-given face never. Won't even come close. See, there was this guy, one of these two guys, Barnabas. His name literally means son of, that's what bar means, son of, Barnabas, son of consolation or son of encouragement. This guy lived up to his name. There's a really interesting Greek word that's used to describe his ministry. It's the word parakaleo. It's actually a compound word in the Greek language, two words combined to make one. But it's a fascinating word. In fact, Bible translators have a hard time capturing the meaning of this word with just one English word. That's why as you read the Greek text, you'll see this Greek word translated a number of different ways in the English language. And when you see that, immediately you have to go, huh, There's something interesting about this Greek word. It doesn't quite, it's not quite captured by just one English word. So let me explain it to you. The word para means to come alongside. But in the Greek language, it's a very soft word. It's a very gentle word. Think of someone you love just kind of snuggling up next to you, right? Maybe you're like watching a movie and you're sharing a bowl of popcorn or something like that and you're just getting real cozy with each other. That's para to come alongside it's a very soft and gentle word then you have this word kaleo which as it sounds means to call actually to shout shout it's a harsh word it's hard it's it's kind of rough kind of in your face and so what the Greeks did is they combine these two words a soft word and a hard word para kaleo to come alongside and to shout it's really interesting. How, what would be the English translation of that? That's why it's so hard. Um, oftentimes, the word exhortation is used, but I think there might be a better better word, a better English word. Maybe a better English word is to implore or maybe to beseech. Because if you're imploring someone, you're saying, I want to say something to you. And, and and I'm I'm I really want to be intense about how I communicate this, but I want it to come from my heart. I want you to hear my heart. You know, if you beseech somebody, what you're doing is you're saying, "I, I want to speak to you out of love," but I want to make sure you get you get. It. I want to make sure you're listening. But I want you to see my heart in what I'm saying. This is why elsewhere in the Bible, as if we need further convincing, both Jesus and the Holy Spirit are referred to using the word parakaleo. So this is the ministry that that Barnabas has. And so this ministry is as important in the church today as it has ever been. Um, If we're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, it can only happen when we are in close proximity to one another. Because think of it like this. Truth is verbal, but love is nonverbal. So when we're together, I get to see the look in your eye. I get to see your facial expression. I get to feel your hand on my shoulder. If we're not in close proximity with other believers, we miss all of that. Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day. Guess what the Greek word for exhort is there? Parakaleo. As long as it is called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is a great definition of sin. Sin is lie. Sin is deceit. And what happens is when you fall into that deceitfulness, something happens within you. You become hardened to it. And then it's like you find yourself giving into it over and over again. And what you need is to be around brothers and sisters who will pull you aside and say, can I speak a strong word into your life, but from my heart? Because I care about you, I want to exhort you. There's the word, I want to exhort you. I want to bring to your remembrance what the scriptures say about what you're doing. And it's all done out of love. By the grace of God, there go I. So this was a very, very important ministry in the early church. And Barnabas did it very, very well. Now, um, why don't we see more of this in the church? That's a pretty fair question to ask. I think the answer is twofold. Number one, we're all pretty insecure. We're pretty insecure people. And because we're insecure, we're not quick to step into someone else's life and say something encouraging to them because we're so needy ourselves. Right? I think that's one, one reason. Number two, I don't think any of us is naturally good at this. It's really, really challenging to be transparent and yet not be self-absorbed. There is no other way for us to get into this space with each other than by coming together and fulfilling what the scriptures actually call us to be as a church. And I've said it before, that Greek word ekklesia literally means Gathering. You have got to come together. And when you do, you do it for the common good. The other thing about this, um, this man Barnabas, same with Paul, over and over again, you hear him being described as a man who is full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, we have a yardstick by which we can measure that. So the question we ask ourselves is, how much love is in my life? How much joy? Am I experiencing? Am I being faithful? What about the goodness that's within me? Kindness. Am I being gentle? Am I, am I exhibiting self-control? If you have that last quality, you probably have, have them all. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're told that the purpose of our spiritual gifts is so that we can serve one another. And so if you want a simple definition of the church, here it is. It's a gathering of Christians who have these, this collection of spiritual gifts. And when we're in close proximity to one another, we use our spiritual gifts to be a blessing to each other. And it is to that degree that this church or any other church is healthy. So having said that, let me say this. Our health is directly dependent upon you. It's up to you. It's up to you to play your part with what God has given you to come in and to be a blessing for the common good. 1 Corinthians twelve seven: to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, not for your own good, but for the common good. That's a sign of a healthy church. Two other things are mentioned here. They prayed and they fasted. Now, in, um, in Ephesians chapter 6, you have this amazing description of sort of this Christian warrior, right? You might know it as the armor of God. So he's got this helmet, he's got this chest protection, you know, he's got the right shoes, he's got the the sword, he's got all of this stuff necessary to go into battle. Does he have everything he needs in that moment? No. Uh, There's something missing. Verse 18 says, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So in other words, in theory, the prayerless Christian can, can be strong, and can be totally armored up, but never accomplish anything because he or she does not pray. And the language here is super rich because it says make all kinds of prayers. Pray on your knees, pray standing up, pray silently, pray out loud, make your requests known, pray for things that are specific, pray for things that are general, pray with passion, All these different kinds of prayers, the Bible says pray without ceasing. So you can be all armored up and ready, but if you're not praying, what will you accomplish? We say around here a lot, prayer can do anything God wants to do. Now, let's talk about fasting. Somebody else should be talking to you about fasting, not me. Let me just get that out there. I love to pray. Fasting, not so much. It's it's, It's a hard one for me in part, because like you, I enjoy food. But you know what fasting does? It's, um, it reminds you that man doesn't live on bread alone. And in those moments where you're like, I could really, man, that ultimate cheeseburger from Jack in the Box is sounding really good right now, you know? It's when you make those personal sacrifices of, watch this now, basic and fundamental necessities in your life, that you are drawn closer to the heart of God. And you're reminded, okay, yeah, even though I'm physically hungry, what I need most is spiritual food. They prayed, they fasted. If you read through the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, you see that fasting was used before big decisions were made. The church gets together. They say, leadership says, well, look around the room. Clearly, God is doing something that is worldwide, including all people in his family. We, in leadership, we represent that. And so now we need to take this beyond our walls to the world. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray. We're going to fast. The Spirit of God speaks. And the Spirit of God says, send your best. You'll be okay because you have the necessary ingredients to be healthy. You've got the scriptures, you've got men and women that are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're exercising their gifts. There's encouragement, there's exhortation, there's parakaleo. Send your best, and they do. Where do you start? You start with people who are full of God's Spirit. Don't ever think for a moment that your own personal walk with God is not important because any ministry that you have will be an outflowing of who you are, the contents of your heart, the desires of your soul. And healthy churches, they're filled with people like this. And so what's really cool for us this morning is that we get a a little Barnabas-style encouragement ourselves because we've got about 10 people that are going to, in obedience, express publicly their faith journey and their commitment to Jesus Christ. And this is one of my most favorite things that we get to do as a church together because we are reminded that God is in the business of changing lives and these people serve as great examples. I'm super thankful they serve as great examples of all that God is and all that God wants to do. So Father, Lord, we just thank you for the reminders of this text Lord, for those who might be far from you, for those who are hurting, for those who just need encouragement, God, I pray that you would use your people to provide exactly what is needed. Father, we ask that your hand of blessing, a special blessing, would be upon these people who are going to talk about your greatness and what you do. Certainly. There are people in the room, even people watching online, they need to hear these words. Lord, I pray that their, their hearts would be open and receptive. That God, we just absolutely celebrate this time. It's all because of you, who you are and what you've done through it for us through your son, Jesus Christ. God, be in our midst now in a powerful way. Through your spirit, we pray. God's people said, amen.